Good morning. Welcome again. Today, uh, here, this is the second week in my little mini-series I'm doing for the season of Epiphany that I'm calling Four Psalms, because I just picked four psalms. I think it's good sometimes to go back to the Old Testament and look at what the Old Testament teaches, which of course isn't just one thing, it's many books. Today we're going to look at Psalm 66, and I picked this one because it's a little bit of a stretch for us in terms of our beliefs and our theology. I think it pushes us. Uh, what it teaches is a little dis uncomfortable, maybe, uh, for, especially for modern people. So we're going to look at, the, look at this because it deals with a struggle that we all know, which is a struggle with a question. Uh, does God put burdens on us? And better yet, does God put burdens on us to test us? And does God intentionally give hardships to test us in some way? Well, the psalm has an answer to that question. It might not be one that at first glance we like, but I'll take a look at it. So we'll dig into the psalm, then I'll give you my response, what I think is going on here. So we'll begin, kind of like last week, we'll break it down a little bit at the beginning to look at how this is set up. Uh, so here we go. Starting at verse 1, we get the nice intro that you always get. Make a joyful noise, sing the glory of his name, give God praise. Psalms like to reiterate, so there's a repetition. But this is a pretty typical intro. Lots of psalms start this way. And then it goes into a list of the things that God does. Remember, it says, let's give praise to God's name. Then it answers the question why we should give praise to God's name and lists some things. So, verse 3, say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Because of your great power, your enemies cringe before you. So, God scares enemies. God makes the enemies in fear. Not because God does bad TikTok dances that embarrass the enemies, but because God is actually a power to be reckoned with. Interesting. Verse 4. All the earth worships you. They sing praises to you. Sing praise to your name. So, is this all? Yeah, I kind of ask the question. Is this all the people of the earth or the whole earth? Is this just people living on the earth or is this the frogs? Is this the snakes? Is this the Gila monsters? I don't know why I'm in an amphibious mode, but I tend to think, I, I'm going to lean towards it being the whole creation because there's also a lot of psalms that do say, let all the peoples praise you. That if they wanted to say the peoples, they, they could have said that. I think this is the whole creation. I think that's the point. That even, even the Gila monster, when, see, when stu standing in the presence of God, would tremble. So, verse 6. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. So this is the Exodus story. Remember the Exodus story, they're saying. God brought the people out of slavery in Egypt. Verse 7. Who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. So this kind of shows God as being a little bit of a, I don't know, divine policeman or something taking a tabs on what is Pharaoh doing and what is this emperor doing and what is this king doing. 
Everybody's kind of being watched by God, especially the big and powerful, even Pharaoh and the king of the Hittites. So, verse 9, who has kept us among the living and has not let our feet slip? So God keeps us alive. This is the same thing it says in the Gospel of John. Through him all things are, right? Everything continues to be because God chooses to let it continue to be. Because God could choose to make it not be, right? And not only that, but not only does God keep you alive, but God keeps you upright, moving, capable of doing things. So that's a lot of awesome stuff that God does. But to be awesome, you have to realize it takes a lot of power to do that. Enemies are not going to cringe in fear unless they think that you're an actual legitimate threat. Enemies don't cower unless they think there could be retribution or some sort of violence against them. So that's, a, that's how this psalmist is portraying God, as capable of doing harm, which is something the psalmist has no problem with. In fact, God putting the fear of God into the enemies is something that the psalm says we should be praising God for. That's a good quality that we should be celebrating. And awe, because if you think about that, awe, awe is just that, right? It's, it's, being, it's being in the presence of someone who's so powerful that it bowls you over and knocks you out and, and, and sort of brings you to your knees. It's why whenever God appears to the prophets, the first thing the prophet does is get down and go, I'm not worthy. And then God says, no, no, you are. I'm, I'm choosing, I'm making you worthy. I declare you worthy. Get up and get to work. But God's presence has that much power. There's that much power in it, even though it is also a very loving presence. And God being both at the same time is not a problem in the Psalms. Those aren't contradictory things. God can be powerful and loving. It's like that song, I didn't get enough time to get it to the band by practice time. Remember, our God is an awesome God. We used to sing it when I first got here. It comes with hand motions. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns, which is really the wrong kind of rain, but it does help you remember. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom. I'm going to get copyrighted here. Power and love. Our God is an awesome God. And then if you're a camp counselor, you get really good at doing this motion. Right? And uh, I thought about that, but the song's got it right. Wisdom, power, and love, all at the same time. God has all three in the same t in the, uh, at once. This psalm's a little more heavy on the power part. And I think if, it, if the psalm just ended there, and we stopped and we read it, we would all go home and go, that's great. We would all feel very satisfied. Isn't that great that the awesome God lifts us up, gives us life, and scares the bejesus out of our enemies? And we would feel very good about ourselves, that God keeps me alive, protects me and my people. But the psalm doesn't stop there. The psalm then takes it and turns it, turns it around. Verse 10, for you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net and laid burdens on our backs. You let people ride over our heads. 
We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out into a spacious place. Here's where that awesome light of God watching what Pharaoh's doing gets turned back around and starts shining on me and my people and my tribe and my nation lest all the believers get all smug and self-righteous and think that we are not under that kind of investigation or accountability, the awesome God, awesome God, has expectations and consequences. And this is where I think we moderns really struggle. Uh, and there's a few reasons for that. I think the first part is that we miss that this psalm is all in the plural. It's all about we. It's God giving us, as a people, burdens. It's God testing us, not individuals. The psalm isn't about individual struggles as much. So, and, and if you misread that, and if you read that as a, as a, as a me instead of an us, what you end up with is someone turning around and saying something like, God gave you cancer to test your faith, which is garbage. That's not what it says. Uh, it says nothing about illnesses, and it says nothing about individuals. This is for the whole nation. In the Old Testament, if you look at the Old Testament, most of the time, burdens and tests come in the form of two things. The vast majority of burdens and tests take two forms, drought and invading armies. Those are the tests, and they test the whole people. Because you got to remember, we live in this big globalized, global supply chain thing where if, if, it, if there's no rain in Iowa, we'll just get it from Wisconsin, right? If the apples don't grow in Washington, we'll ship them in from Chile. If you're in ancient Israel and the grass doesn't grow and there's no hay, and, you know, you can't just go and import it from Egypt. And if you do, Pharaoh's going to want something in return, right? So a drought, this is life or death stuff. And when a drought happens, of course, your first question is, God, you said you, were gonna, you brought us to the, to, to the land of milk and honey. Where's the rain? And so one of the first things that would come would be then one of the other neighboring pagan gods, their priest, the priest of, say, Baal, would come in and go, eh, the Lord God just sends trust you. Don't listen to him. Come with me. Do a little child sacrifice. I know it's kind of ugly, but it'll get you the rain. Right? Is it, you, you might lose one, but you won't all die. That was the line that was doing. So a drought was a test of faith. The second one was the invading armies. And there was a lot of this going on. The Jewish people were always this little group surrounded by big empires. And the prophets would come and they would look at the people and say, you're misusing the poor, you're selling people in debt slavery, your, you know, your, uh, your courts are all corrupt and full of bribes. As a punishment for this, I, the Lord God, will send the king of Babylon to destroy you. But I'll warn you so you can change your ways before he's done. 
And so then they would sit there in Jerusalem and they would look out over the walls and there'd be this big army and it's a faith test again. The Lord God says, change your ways and trust me. But usually the kings were like, uh, that means changing my ways, you know. Uh, I think I'll take my chances. I, it was always like the dumbest thing, like this is the biggest army on the planet. You're this one little city of 30,000 people and you think you're going to beat them. But they always said, I'll beat them. It never worked. But there was a test. That was a test. A faith test of the nation. Now, then you get into the next one here. Uh, verse 12. You let people ride over our heads. I hope this is a metaphor. But I won't lie that my first thought when I read this was Boot Hill Cemetery down in Tombstone. You ever been to Boot Hill Cemetery? It's, it's, it, you see it right as you come in. Um, it's totally worth it if you haven't been there. It's got all these graves from the 1870s and 1880s. And you can get a guidebook and get a little brochure and walk around and see how all these different people died. And I discovered something in my times down there. Most people died one of two ways. They were shot by Wyatt Earp, or they fell off a horse and got crushed by a wagon. And that actually, there was a lot of those, a lot more than I thought. And I'm like, this was a really rough place to be. But to think that your odds were about even of getting killed by the wagon as getting killed by the bartender. That was what he was. He was a bartender, and then he became sheriff, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then I'm like, well, I hope, I really hope the psalmist is this is a metaphor. That this isn't some gruesome memory of what happened in Egypt or something. But the ancient world is a harsh place. But the third thing is, I just, I think we just don't like the idea of God putting burdens on us. That's not nice. God isn't supposed to be anything but niceness, kindness, goodness, good feels, me getting happy, happy, good, good, happy, happy. The idea that God is powerful and puts burdens on us, just, we, we, that is just goes against everything we moderns like, think of, you know? And, uh, and I think part of the reason we don't like it is because we can probably remember somebody somewhere in our history, in our family, come, or, or, you know, in our friends, who sat there when somebody went through a tragedy, say there was a car accident, they lost a loved one, and there was always that one person who asked to stand up, incredibly uncomfortable to just be in the midst of a horrid tragedy and wanted to make it meaningful and, 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 and have some higher purpose so they would then open their mouth and say, this is God testing your faith. And after we hear a line like that, you know, I don't entirely blame people for having a faith crisis. I mean, you really think God is sitting there, you know, switching the, or flipping the switch on the traffic light so you'll be more devout? You really think God is looking up there going, man, that guy who writes those atheist letters in the star, he needs a little bit more faith. Let's uh, sprinkle some ice in front of his car. That'll then that'll teach him. Really? That's what you think? But it's hard to believe sometimes 
most of the time that tragedies are either nonsensical or that they're perfectly preventable, but we as humans set up a dumb system, right? We put the speed limit too high. We didn't provide enough public transportation. There's too many cars on the road. We designed the cars too big. We didn't give a long enough red light. Or, you know, but that's shining that light back, right? So when you hear that, yeah, you know, I get it. I would have a hard time with the idea of God, you know, deliberately making tragedy to do that. I think that's garbage. I've never taught that. I'm always the one who's saying, no, that isn't how God works. But yet the psalm does say that God tests us. So what is it saying? Well, here's, here's my response. When you are the one who is weak and powerless, and you're in a situation where you're up against enemies, powers, things that you can't control, things that are overwhelming you and you feel powerless against, who do you turn to in that moment? you turn to someone who has power. If I'm going to be powerless and being downtrodden, you know, by some invading army, I want, I, am I going to turn to the God who just says, nicey, nicey, happy, happy, or do I want the God who's going to kick some butt? I want a, I want a powerful God. If I'm being bullied, if I'm sitting in the classroom and I'm being bullied, do I want the teacher to go, come on, kitties, be nicey? Or do I want the teacher to grab the bully, grip him by the ear, and throw him out and tell his dad to spank him? That was something that happened in my era. I know that I am aware that times have changed. We take the bully into a room and talk about his feelings now. Um, hey, if that works, it works. Do it. But I want you to intervene and disrupt what's going on. I want you to exercise some power to stop me being picked on. In that moment, I want more than just be nice. Maybe this is, why, this is what happens when you grow up in Minnesota. You get so traumatized by everybody telling everyone to be nice. Like, niceness is the highest virtue. There's, you know, there's justice and truth, but there's niceness. <laughs> Which is a word that's not in the Bible, but... I want, the, I want that, in that moment, I want the awesome God. I want that awesome God. I want that awesome God to deliver me. And I think the Jewish people were the same way. They were always the small one getting picked on by the big one and looking with hope, sometimes desperation, for an awesome God. The idea of God being powerful is deeply comforting when you are small and oppressed. It is. It's very comforting. And not only that, it's just. Because think about it. What kind of a good God is going to sit there and watch suffering and not do anything? It's kind of like that bumper sticker. You know, if you're not mad, you're not paying attention. We should be a little bit mad when we see people suffering. I would think that good people would get mad when they see other people suffering when they see injustice, that you would get angry about that and want to exercise some power to fix it. What kind of God watches me sit and do harmful things to other people and then just doesn't intervene at all? And what kind of God sees me do all evil things and doesn't try to correct me? If it's fair for God to do it to Pharaoh and the Hittites, it's fair for God to do it to me. 
Sometimes I am wrong. I know that will shock you. No, it won't shock you at all. But sometimes I'm wrong. Sometimes I do harm to others. Sometimes I need God to hold me accountable. Or better yet, we do harm to others and need to be corrected. Do we not have, sometimes need our faith put to the test? It's kind of like we want God to be all wrath and power as long as it's just for those people. But the God who upholds justice and truth wants us to do the same. And so when you're reading through the Psalms, at least Psalm 65, I'll start there, it isn't about illnesses, and it's not about personal tragedies. And it wasn't like there was not plenty of illness and personal tragedy back then. They had, they had it in spades. But this psalm is about a nation coming to terms with its systemic ills and sins. It's about a people looking at how they treat the poor and the widow and the orphan and the alien. It's about how people stay faithful to God when it gets tempting to turn to other things for a quick solution, and that's what we call an idol. And for the ancient people, droughts were a test of faith. Armies were a test of faith. Fear of security was a test of faith. And if this is where we have to get to ourselves, even as Christians, we sit there. You know, I hear this all the time. I have the same struggle myself. You read Jesus, you're flipping through, and he's like, you know, turn the other cheek and, and don't pick up the sword and, and love your enemies. And it gets real easy to say, okay, Jesus, that's all nice when it comes to the annoying uncle at the family reunion, but this is the real world, Jesus. We have people with guns and bombs who actually want to kill us. Love your enemies? You know, come on. You know, it gets real easy when you actually are, when you start getting a little scared to say, all that Jesus love stuff is mamby-pamby. It's personal. It can't work on a big scale. But Jesus didn't say love your enemies only applies to your individual problems. So it gets real easy to turn to an idol to get me the power to fix it rather than turning to the Lord God. The whole point of the psalm is that it's exactly for the nation, the we. That God does send droughts and invading armies to test we are going, whether we are going to use God, turn to God for the solution to our problems, or whether we're going to turn to an idol or try to fix it ourselves as if we had the power that only God has. This is what the psalm is getting at. God is awesome and powerful and good and can solve the problems we fear most, but we have to have some trust in his actions to do that. And when hard times come, it can be a test. But in the Bible, in the record of the Bible, God always does come through. In the end, God always comes through, and that's what the psalm is saying. God always does. Amen.